Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is the assignment for December 2nd through 8th, and it is 1st through 3rd John, and also the epistle of Jude. The title of the lesson is God is Love. Okay, so let's do a little bit of background history on the epistles of John, and also on the epistle of Jude, because they're very interesting. So let's take a look at those. Okay, from the New Testament Seminary Teacher Manual, we've got the introduction to the first epistle of John. So why should we study this book? What's important about it? Well, in this epistle, John addressed the dangerous spread of apostate influences in the church. So he's talking about the antichrists that are coming into the young church. Um, He warns the saints to have no fellowship with darkness and to stay in the safety of the gospel light. Studying 1 John can help students become more discerning of false teachings about Jesus Christ and follow Following John's counsel can help them maintain close fellowship with the Lord as they abide in the truth. In addition, studying this book can help students come to understand the great love Heavenly Father has for each one of His children, and He manifested that by offering His Son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for all mankind. So, we're addressing a couple of different things here. Themes of light and darkness, themes of apostasy within the church and outside influences coming into the church, of strengthening our relationship with Jesus Christ, and understanding our Savior. Savior's love for us. So who wrote this book? Well, in none of the three epistles does the writer mention himself by name, but tradition assigns them to John, one of the original 12 apostles, and the author of the epistles of John was an eyewitness to the resurrected Savior. So John, the apostle, was definitely a witness to the resurrected Savior. Also, I have to say in my own personal study, I noticed as I was going in and reading these epistles of John how similar they were in feel and context to the original gospel of John that we read, you know, at the beginning of the year. And it was so nice to read this week's assignment. It was like coming home after being out in the cold and getting warm again. I mean, it was like after all the Pauline epistles and the trudging through the Pauline epistles and just so doctrinally heavy and just hard to understand. And then I get here and I'm like, oh, John, you're talking about light and dark and the love of Christ and God is love. And I'm like, I can get behind this. Like, this is good stuff, John. And it reminded me a lot too, as I went in the first couple of verses there, reminded me of the first couple of verses in John, the gospel of John. So I want to read them to you just real quick. So you can see like the contrast between the two or the similarities between the two. So gospel of John in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. 
Okay, that's the Gospel of John. Here is the first epistle of John. That which was seen from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that we also may have fellowship with us. Our truly fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write unto you, that your joy may be full. And then this is the message that we have heard of Him, and declare it unto you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Okay, do you see, like, the similarities between the two? I'm like, how could this be anybody but John? Like, I mean, they're just so similar. And I also see the similarities in when we go back and we look at the Gospel of John. You know, he was a follower of John the Baptist. I know there's lots of Johns floating around here, but, you know, um, John the Baptist. Then there's John the Beloved, who's the apostle who is writing the Gospel of John and also these epistles here, okay? So John the Beloved was a follower of John the Baptist. And John the Beloved starts his Gospel by kind of bearing his testimony about who John the Baptist is in comparison to Christ, because he had all that background knowledge about John the Baptist. Well, now we come in here in the first epistle of John, and it's John the Beloved bearing his testimony all about Christ and his experiences with Christ, because he has that background knowledge of Jesus Christ, having spent his mortal ministry there with John and the other apostles. John actually being able to fill the whole prince in his hands after he's resurrected. And so that is going to become in great use here in a minute because of the different philosophies of men that were kind of creeping into the early Christian church. So, sorry guys, I know that was a rabbit trail, but uh, I just, I really feel like these two, or I guess the three epistles and then the gospel of John, I feel like they were really all written by the same author, and I feel pretty strongly about that. So, I just wanted to point that out there. Okay, back to New Testament Seminary Teacher Manual. When and where was it written? Eh, we don't really know. It was likely written sometime in the latter part of the first century. Although John spent much of his early part of his life in Palestine, the area was hostile to Christians and Jews following the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Tradition states that John left Palestine to live in Ephesus during his later years. If this was the case, John could have written the letter from Ephesus between 70 and 100 AD. To whom was it written and why? The audience of 1 John is not explicitly stated, but appears from his writings that John wrote to the believers, perhaps those in Asia Minor, like modern-day Turkey, where some historical sources say that John may have lived and ministered in the late century. At this time, false teachers had created a schism or division among the saints in the region. This is where it gets really important, guys, so listen up, okay? An apostasy was spreading in the church. A particular philosophy was gaining popularity was Docetism. Docetism was part of a larger movement known as Gnosticism. A core teaching in many forms of Gnosticism was that the spirit was wholly good and that matter, including physical body, was wholly evil. Followers of Gnosticism believed that salvation was not achieved by being freed from sin, but rather by freeing the spirit from matter, meaning the physical body. They also believed that salvation was achieved through special knowledge, or gnosis, rather than faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so we are now placing our faith in the knowledge of the world versus our knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? Okay, followers of Docetism overemphasized Jesus' spiritual nature to the point 
that they rejected the idea that he came to earth in actual bodily form. They believed that God was invisible, immortal, all-knowing, immaterial, and they considered the physical world and the physical body to be base and evil. Therefore, they believed that since Jesus was the divine Son of God, he could not have experienced the limitations of being human. In their views, Jesus Christ was not literally born in the flesh, and he did not inhabit a tangible body, bleed, suffer, die, or rise with a physical resurrected body. He only seemed to be doing these things. Docetism comes from the Greek word docido, meaning to seem or to appear. Although 1 John refutes these false teachings, they persisted and crept into church membership. These and other false doctrines are part of what led to the great apostasy. And I think it's important to point that out because when I was reading these epistles of John and he keeps talking about the Antichrist, I'm like, well, you know, yeah, I mean, what they're teaching is, you know, not what we believe and it's not right. It's not correct. But I'm like, Antichrist is really kind of like a really harsh term for what they, you know, and I was like, oh, that's really harsh. But then I'm like, no, if these philosophies of men were what brought in the great apostasy or even part of what brought in the great apostasy, then yeah, it's antithetical to everything that Christ stands for. It's the darkness and the, you know, chaos that Christ is against. And yeah, they would be antichrists. Okay. So that's the reason when we go in and we are reading these epistles of John, it talks so much about him seeing and being with Christ and, you know, touching his body and Christ in the flesh. And, you know, it talks all about that and the love that Christ has for us, that he would come to earth for us, which is one of the most beautiful points of the entire story of the atonement is that the son of God, the perfect son of God would come to earth and take on that physical body that yes, is, you know, human and base. And, you know, it is exposed to all kinds of temptations and illnesses and sicknesses, but he did that for us. And that is the love of God that John is trying to spread. And that's the exact same thing that these other philosophies of men were trying to defeat. I mean, that part of the atonement was that he took all that on for us so that he could understand what we go through. So I could see again why they would call these people antichrist if they are fighting against that. So that's First John. Sorry, I get a little like, you know, involved in it. So the second and third epistles of John are very kind of similarly themed. Um, we have two different people that they're actually written to, though. The second epistle of John is believed to have been written right around the same time that the first epistle was, and maybe from Ephesus as well. We're not really quite sure, but, you know, between 70 and 100 AD as well. Okay, so to whom was it written and why? The second epistle of John was written to an elect lady and her children. It is unknown whether John was addressing his family or another specific group of people or speaking to the church collectively in figurative language. Elder Bruce R. McConkie of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles wrote that 2nd and 3rd John may be letters that John wrote to members of his immediate family. Okay, you know, there there are other theories that it was actually, metaphorically speaking, the church congregation or whatever. But I have to tell you, when I was reading 2nd John and they mentioned that elect lady and her children, like the vibe that I got was very much like Alexander Hamilton writing to Eliza. Um, you know, like that, that kind of thing is kind of the vibe that I was picking up from it. So I really think that this was John writing to his family. Um, you know, maybe he wasn't with them and he's writing to them. And I just, I really love that idea of him warning them 
against, hey, here's all this evil stuff that I'm seeing out here. Please stay away from it. Please keep yourself close to Christ. Because it's the same thing that I would say to my family as well, right? I really, really loved that idea. Okay, so the third epistle of John. So why should we study this book? In this brief epistle, John is praising Gaius, who is a church member that was loyal to in a time of rebellion against church leaders. John's teachings can help us understand the apostasy that occurred there in the New Testament and the early church and helps us remain faithful to church leaders despite opposition that we may face. So who wrote this book? Again, John identifies himself as the elder. We believe that it is the Apostle John. When and where was it written? Well, we don't really know. Okay. Tradition, again, is Ephesus 70 to 180. To whom was it written and why? The third epistle of John was written to Gaius, a faithful member of the church whom John praised for showing unselfish devotion to the cause of Christ by providing accommodations for God's traveling servants. John also warned Gaius about someone named Diotrophenes, I think, who may have held a local leadership position in the church. Diotrophenes? I don't know. I don't even know how you say it. Diotrophenes? Uh, maybe? Okay. Diotrephes openly opposed John and other church officials and even prevented local church members who wished to receive them from attending church meetings. John encouraged Gaius to continue in goodness and said he expected to visit Gaius soon. All right, so we're seeing even internally within the church local church, that there were local church leaders who were fighting against, you know, having servants of the Lord come and visit them. And we're seeing all kinds of apostasy. It's really kind of sad to see, you know, having started at the very beginning of the New Testament and from Christ's ministry to this early little fledgling church and all the work that Paul poured into it. And, um, you know, just seeing them start to kind of fall away into apostasy is really kind of sad. Um, it was hard to see that. All right, so then let's talk about the book of Jude, because y'all, the book of Jude is just another one of those books where you're kind of like, hey, like it's just totally different from everything else out there. All right, so why study this book? The general epistle of Jude describes the forces of apostasy that were at work in the early church. As students study this epistle, they can learn how to discern those who seek to turn disciples of Christ away from the faith, and we can also come to feel the importance of earnestly contending for the faith and remaining true to it. I think it also, this is Lexi personally, like I think it also helps us understand how to deal when we are confronted with situations from the adversary. Um, it helps us battle those temptations and those things like that. It gives us some fighting tools. And um, that's really what I saw in the book of Jude. All right, who wrote this book? The author of this epistle identifies himself as Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. So, again, another book, you know, James was another book where it was kind of like, whoa, this is totally different in flavor from the rest of these books. But Jude is the same way, where it's like, whoa, this is totally different from flavor from the rest of the epistles and stuff like that. But it's got different stuff in it. But hey, it's still good stuff, right? Traditionally, the author has been understood to be Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Jude was evidently a church member of high esteem in Jerusalem, and he may have traveled as a missionary, but there's no indication of what priesthood office Jude held, and the epistle itself suggests that he had a position of authority that qualified him to write letters of counsel. When and where was it written? Eh, we don't know. <laughs> That's kind of the theme with all of these. Huh? We, we can kind of guess, right? We, we can only guess. If this letter was indeed authored by Jude, the brother of Jesus, it was probably written between 40 and 80 A.D., to whom was it written and why? 
The epistle of Jude was addressed to faithful Christians, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. That's from Jude 1.1. 1, 1. Jude's stated purpose was to encourage his readers to earnestly contend for the faith against ungodly teachers who had entered the church and were promoting immoral behavior and false teachings that denied the Lord Jesus Christ. What are some distinctive features of this book? Okay, hold on. This is like the important stuff. What are distinctive features of this book that we find nowhere else in Scripture? Well, here we go. Although it is one of the shortest books in the New Testament, the Epistle of Jude contains information that is not found anywhere else in the Bible. Jude wrote about angels which kept not their first estate, from verse 6, and a confrontation between Michael and Lucifer over the body of Moses, verse 9, which was fascinating to me, but um, we'll talk more about that in a minute. It also contains a prophecy of Enoch and the Savior's second coming. Bruce R. McConkie of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles noted several unique characteristics in the Epistle of Jude. In the whole Bible, he said, it is Jude only who preserves for us the concept that the pre-existence was our first estate that certain angels failed to pass its tests. It is to him that we turn for our meager knowledge of the disputation between Michael and Lucifer about the body of Moses. He alone records Enoch's glorious prophecy about the second coming of the Son of Man. Jude's words are sharp against those who opposed God and his servants, and against those who are practicing immoral pagan worship, claiming to be exempt from the needing to obey God's commandments, including the law of chastity. Jude describes some of the characteristics of these corrupt individuals. Okay, so what is the whole, like, I know we haven't even touched Come Follow Me yet, guys, but I, I still want to talk about this because I found it so interesting. So what is the whole devil and Michael fighting over the body of Moses? So first, let's actually go into the epistle of Jude and read what it says. So it's talking about, you know, the angels that didn't keep their first estate. Then it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, giving themselves over to fornication and, you know, all kinds of temptations and ugh, yucky stuff and um, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh and, you know, all kinds of yuckiness. And then we get to verse 9 and it says, Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. So, what were they even talking about? Well, the only other recorded instance that we have of this anywhere without, like, throughout history is a description that comes from an early Christian scholar named Origen, a theologian. He mentions the book, The Assumption of Moses, as an extent in his time, meaning an extraneous piece of scripture in his time. And this was probably right around 185 to 254 AD. And so in his writings, he mentions about a book called The Assumption of Moses. And that book, which is now lost, was a Jewish-Greek book, and Origen supposed that this was the source of the account in Jude. So apparently there was some kind of scriptural text that was floating around at that point that talked about Michael the archangel and the devil fighting over the body of Moses. Alright, so what is the big deal about this? Well, besides it just being rather fascinating and kind of captivating my attention for a little bit, I started thinking about it and started thinking about the way it's actually included in the book of Jude. And what I saw was Michael, the archangel, fighting the devil over the body of Moses. And it was interesting to me that he did not engage directly with the devil. Instead, it says, Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. So he's talking about all this yucky stuff that's going on. And then even in this confrontation with the devil, 
Michael doesn't contend him head on. He says, the Lord rebuke thee. So when we are in this world of chaos and antichrist and all kinds of darkness and awfulness, you know, we don't fight Satan. The Lord fights Satan for us. He fights that battle. He wins that battle. We don't try and do it ourselves. We turn to him every time we are confronted with something that is of that nature, of the adversary. We let the Lord handle it. We turn to him. We plead for his help, for his grace, for his spirit to help fight that out of our lives, right? And so I was like, that is a really good example, I think, to handle all of the nastiness that we encounter in our everyday world, to consciously turn away from it and turn to the Lord instead of trying to fight it. You know, so that's kind of what I learned in exploring that particular story there in the book of Jude. Okay, now we will jump right into Come Follow Me after that lengthy introduction of like 20 minutes, right? Okay, so here we go. We talked about where all that stuff came from. So first section is God is light and God is love. If you were to choose one or two words to describe God, what would they be? And the first two words, and I think you guys can probably guess what they are, um, because the first one was grace and the second one was hope. So hope and grace are my two words that um, I picked. And the reason I picked those is because in a fallen world where we are surrounded by sin and we are surrounded by chaos and darkness and, you know, just, again, yucky stuff everywhere we go, God gives us hope for a better world. He gives us hope that we can overcome this world just like Christ did, that we can find peace in him, that we can find light in him, and that he can guide us through the yuck, right? And grace is the other thing I think about that because it's what takes our humanity, our unholiness, our impurities, and it's what makes us holy. The grace of Jesus Christ, his atonement makes us holy. And so those were the two words that really came to my mind, hope and grace, right? Well, in his epistles, John chose the words light and love. And I'm like, you know what? Those can kind of be the same thing. You know, the light of Christ is what guides us through this yucky world and gives us hope for a better future. And that's hope right there. So the light of Christ is hope. Yeah, John, I'm feeling you on this. Yes. And then the love of Jesus Christ is what caused the atonement and caused grace and all that goodness that comes out of it. So yeah, love and grace, same thing as far as I'm concerned. John, I'm feeling you on this. Yes, sir. As you read 1 John, ponder John's experiences as recorded in the Gospel of John and consider how these experiences may have taught John about the light and love of God. All right, so... I went back and actually listened to episode four of The Savior Said, which is where we had our little introduction to the book of John. And it was interesting to go back and kind of see my, I guess, thoughts about John and how he wrote back then. And it helped remind me of some of the different characteristics of that particular gospel. But one of the things that I loved is that John crammed testimony into almost every single chapter of his book. I mean, there's testimony of apostles. There's testimony of, you know, Christ's divinity as the Son of God. There's testimony here and testimony there. And so I see a similar thing when we go in and we read these epistles where John is bearing his testimony left and right about the divinity of Jesus Christ, of the humanity of him when he came down to this earth, and then of his mission here to save us in our sins. Like, the whole thing is his testimony and how we can use that testimony to fight off the adversary and any darkness in our life. And so those were some of the things that I saw that kind of corresponded. What personal experiences have taught you that God is light and love? Well, as I was pondering upon this this week, 
I don't necessarily know. There wasn't anything that jumped out to me that was like, oh yeah, that was an experience where I really thought about light and love and God. But I thought of an experience that was actually the opposite, which is so interesting to me this week. The like contrast in my mind between light and dark is really kind of, I guess, what I really focused on when I was reading these. So I guess this is why that this experience came to my mind. But there was a time when I was a young single adult and, you know, I was just entering the professional world. I just graduated from college. I wasn't that old, but I considered myself old and unmarried and old spinstery way. Um, you know, all my friends were married. Some of them were having babies. You know, it was it was just kind of a hard thing. And at that point in my life, you know, I, all along I was like, you know, God has a plan for me. God has a plan for me. God has a plan for me. And I get to this point and I'm like, you know what? What if he's not there? What if there's not a God there? What if there is no plan for me and I'm floating through this life on my own? And at this point, I was also really angry with God because I was still single with like no prospects in sight. I was really angry at the situation he had put me in because I felt he put me in an area where there wasn't a whole lot of other members of the church. And how was I supposed to meet anybody in this area? And I was just really frustrated with him. And so I was like, well, what if he's not there? What if there is no God? What if there is no Jesus Christ? What if I'm, what if I'm doing this by myself? And for about two or three days, like I just kind of operated with that assumption. I'm like, what if there's no God? And I have to tell you, it was like the worst two or three days, maybe not the worst, but it was awful enough that it sticks in my mind, even though it was like, you know, 10 plus years ago that it sticks in my mind because it was so awful. It was so dark and it was cold and it was just a depressing way to live. And I finally got to the point where I was like, you know what? Like even let's say down the road after this life, I find out God's not real. Even if that's the case, do you know what? My life is happier knowing that there is a God in heaven and that I have a savior. The light in my life came flooding back in and I was able to feel that contrast between the darkness of not believing in God and Jesus Christ and then coming back and believing in them again. Like Lehi says, you know, you don't know joy if you've never known pain. And so having believed in Jesus Christ like my whole life, I don't think I'd ever gotten to the point where I really was like, what if he's not real? You know, and so it was those couple of days of questioning and kind of being like, okay, so I'm just going to live the next couple of days like he's not real and feeling that darkness, that awful gloom that just overtook me and then deciding to dispel it by saying, you know what? I believe. I definitely believe. And feeling the light and the love of God rushing back in. I appreciate it so much more now having felt that darkness. And so I'm able to see the light and love much more in my life now. So to any of you who are sitting in darkness or feel like you're sitting in darkness, know that someday when you come out of that darkness, there will be a purpose for it because you will be able to feel the light and love of Jesus Christ so much stronger in your life. So yeah, that was just the experience that kind of came to my mind with that. So 1 John 2, 24 through chapter 3, verse 3, I can become like Jesus Christ. Does the goal of becoming Christ-like ever seem too lofty to you? Uh, yes. Yes, it does. I get overwhelmed by it a lot. Um, Consider John's encouraging counsel. Little children abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence, and we shall be like him. What do you find in 1 John chapter 2, verse 24 through chapter 3, verse 3, that gives you confidence and comfort as a disciple of Jesus Christ? As you study John's epistles, look for other principles or counsel that help you in your efforts to become more like Christ. And the first thing I saw was in 1 John 
chapter 2, verse 24, where he says, Let therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye shall continue in the Son and in the Father. If you take that knowledge that you have of Jesus Christ and of Heavenly Father, and of who you are in relationship to them, and you let it abide in you, you let it sit inside of you, you keep it with you, then, of course, you're going to continue in the gospel of Jesus Christ, because once you have that knowledge, you can hold on to it. And so that was one of the biggest things that stood out to me right away. And I think knowing, having that knowledge kind of living in you, helps turn you towards Jesus Christ and helps move you in that direction of trying to become more like him. An example of this is just today. You know, I knew I was going to come home and record this podcast. And so, you know, I was trying to get ready spiritually. I'm listening to, you know, church music and stuff like that on my drive home. And, you know, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say and everything. I go and I pick my son up from school and he is just in a sassy pants mood, like smarting off left and right. Like, you know, just even now it just makes me want to strangle him. You know, I was like just doing the typical teenager thing, right? Okay. So I even got to the point where at one point I was like, you know, I can't deal with you right now. And like I closed the door and walked away and I came back later and opened up the door and he was on the other side. And I was like, oh, are you coming to apologize? He's like, no, I'm coming to tell you. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this kid right now. And so I was like, no, you need to go away. (laughs) So, um, you know, he went and he sat down and he was working on some homework. I sit back down to work on this podcast and I'm like, and the spirit is totally gone. Like totally gone after having argued with him for like 30 minutes. And I was like, okay, well, honest and truly, he needs to come apologize for the way he talked to me. And so I was like, I'm not going to apologize first. He needs to come do it. But then I was like, what would Jesus Christ do in the situation? Like, what would he do? And I was like, he would reach out to someone who had offended him. And so, you know, I go over to my son and I pat him on the back and I'm like, you know, I'm sorry that you are unhappy about this certain thing in this situation. And I just want you to know that I love you. And he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I was sassy. (laughs) Okay, good. I'm glad. You know, we had like a good little, little chat about that and our attitude of when we talk to our mom versus when we talk to our Fortnite bros. Right. So uh, (laughs) you can tell I'm still a little bitter, but it's okay. Um, That was an example to me of how focusing on what I have learned this week in the Gospel of John, letting that light back into my life, and again, feeling the absence of it when I had been fighting with him, and realizing that I needed that light and that love back in my life, and the steps that I needed to do, even though my pride was in the way of that, overcoming my pride to become like Christ, and following the counsel that John gives us here in these epistles to lead me back to apologize to my son. And it was really kind of a moment for me where I realized how I can become like Jesus Christ. All right, so the next section in Come Follow Me is, Has no man seen God at any time? Which is another like flashback to the Gospel of John, because he says that in the Gospel of John too. So that's again, I'm like, this this has to be John. Like this just feels like John. So we're actually going to take a moment to dip back into the Savior Said archives, because I wrote down a couple of different instances where up to that point in time, yes, man had seen God throughout the Old Testament. So here we go. Flashback into the archives, episode four of The Savior Said. Okay, so the next part in Come Follow Me is titled, Has Anyone Seen God? And it talks about John 1.18. And in John 1.18, it says, No man hath seen God at any time. Okay, 
So why would John say that? If we go back and we look at the Joseph Smith version, the Joseph Smith translation of this verse, right? It says that the father does appear to men, and when he does, he bears record of his son. So it kind of clarifies that a little bit. Because if we look back, we know that men have seen God, right? We see all the way back to Genesis with the example of Jacob and Jacob of Esau, you know that story. Jacob says, I've seen God face to face. Okay, um, we have Moses who says the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaketh to a friend. We have the story in Isaiah 6 verse 5. And this is absolutely one of my, again, one of my favorite scriptures and scripture stories. Um, Isaiah is talking to God and he is telling him, I am a man of unclean lips. Basically, I have a potty mouth, Lord. I swear I'm weak. I'm so sorry. And even though he is imperfect, he says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts even though I am a man of unclean lips. So just because you have a weakness, I think sometimes we think we have to be perfect to really, you know, be good enough for God. And I'm not saying go out and sin, but he takes us where we are and he takes our weaknesses and he meets us. And I think that's amazing. I love, love Isaiah 6, 5. Um, some other places where we see where man has seen God, Stephen in Acts 7 um, sees him, you know, during his martyrdom where he is being stoned to death. He sees God. And we see from the Book of Mormon in First Nephi and chapter 1, 8 through 11, Lehi sees God sitting on the throne, right? We've got D&C 137, 1 through 3, Joseph Smith sees the entrance to heaven. Um, his little brother has passed on, right? And he sees the father and the son. And of course, Joseph Smith's like most famous um, inter, you know, interaction with God is the first vision. We also have people who have heard his voice. We see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, it's Jesus' baptism. And they hear a voice saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I think that's a theme that we see a lot, right? Um, Matthew 17, 5. Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus Christ. And they hear again, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay, 3 Nephi 11, 6 through 7. The people are gathered at the land of Bountiful. This is after all the destruction. And they hear a voice. And the voice says, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and whom I have glorified my name. And, of course, that is right after the Savior's crucifixion. So I love that he tacked on that little part about, In whom I have glorified my name. You know, um, he's kind of proud. He's proud of Jesus and what Jesus just did. And he's kind of, you know, he just glorified, and that's, I don't know, I think that's really sweet. I love that. And then, of course, the Joseph Smith vision, um, where he said, This is my beloved son, hear him. Your Heavenly Father said that in Joseph Smith's vision. Okay, so there's some beautiful moments that God has spoken to and appeared to his servants here on earth. And I'm sure that there are many others that we do not have recorded in Scripture but that have happened throughout the years. And how beautiful and sacred is that? I'll go ahead and I'll post a listing of all these different scripture references in my blog so you can go back and read them for yourself as well. Okay, so for this next section, it is 1 John 5. I'm actually going to dip into John 4, though, too. As I exercise faith in Jesus Christ and am born again, I can overcome the world. The idea of overcoming the world appears multiple times in John's writings. John recorded Jesus saying, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 
and Revelation 2-3, John recorded the world's promises to those who overcome the world. What did John say about overcoming the world in 1 John 5, 3-5? As you read 1 John 5, look for what we must do to overcome the world and gain eternal life. Okay, so 1 John 5, 3-5 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even of our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? And again, this is kind of what I think we've talked about earlier, where, you know, when we abide in that knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, and we have it internalized in our hearts, and we try to become more like him, we will become less and less like the world. And the world would have us be prideful. It would have us be impatient. It would have us be lazy. It would have us be, and I'm listing all the stuff that, like, I am particularly, like, troubled by. Um, And it would have us be negative and pessimistic. And it would have us be all these things, but that's not what Jesus Christ is. And so by casting that off, we can become more like Jesus Christ. We can become greater than what the world is. And that actually reminded me of a scripture that I read this week that was in 1 John 4, and it's 1 John 4, 4. And ye are of God little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the reason that that scripture particularly stuck out to me is because it's the chorus of one of my favorite songs from a band called Mercy Me. The song is greater. I'll let you guys hear it in a moment. But, you know, it's it's the chorus of the song. And it, it talks about bringing all the stuff of this world. Guilt, shame, pain, tiredness, and taking it and giving it to Christ. And it talks about... I hear a voice, and he calls me redeemed, when others say I'll never be enough. And greater is the one who is living inside of me than he who is living in the world. And it's bringing your doubts, your fears, your hurts, your tears. No condemnations here. You won't be judged. You're holy, you're righteous, and redeemed because of him. And that is the faith that we have, that we can overcome the world, that we can overcome all the yuck that's in the world, and we can become more like him. That we can have that light and that holiness with us everywhere we go as it abides in us. And that was really what I took from the reading this week. So I hope that blessed you guys a little bit. So we're going to go ahead and end this episode now. You're going to hear Greater by Mercy Me. And that's this week's episode. So bye, y'all. tired and bring your shame bring your guilt and bring your pain don't you know that's not your name you will always be much more to me and every day i wrestle with the voices that keep telling me i'm not right but that's all right cause i
episode alerts and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Have a question or comment? Email me at the Savior Said at gmail.com. Content in the Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening. <laughs>